Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Tuesday, April 13th, 2010, and welcome to Conversations.net and the Future of Education. Really delighted to have you here, and especially delighted to have Scott Rosenberg here. Scott, thank you so much for coming tonight. My pleasure. Uh, Scott's book is Say Everything, How Blogging Began, What It's Becoming, and Why It Matters, and it is a full 300 and... 60 pages, roughly, and I got to tell you, Scott, I couldn't put it down. So we'll get to that. The interview series is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, and the free social network that we run for educators called Learn Central. It has Illuminate baked in. Hope you'll come and uh, give it a try and tell us what you think and help us to build a, a good educational community. Coming up on the series uh, tomorrow, our Education for Digital World 2.0 series continues, uh, actually with three sessions. Those are uh, the authors of chapters of that book. On April 21st, Larry, Larry Ferlazzo on his new book. Those of you who know Larry and his work with uh, second language English as a second language learners and the web. It will be a fascinating evening. Uh, April 22nd, another report from Michael Horn and the Inside Institute on the Wichita Public Schools Learning Centers. Tim Magner on April 22nd. Really looking forward to that. Dr. Robert Epstein on Teen 2.0 on the 26th. This is another uh, big book, but also equally rewarding. Randy Orwin on Intelligent Implementation of Open Source Software. Then on the 27th, our own Jackie Gerstein, who is in the room, is going to be talking about user-generated education. Following up the next day, Anya Kamenetz, I hope I'm saying her name right, on her new book, DIYU, which is getting some publicity uh, about, about uh, do-it-yourself uh, at the college level. Okay, lots more fun coming up. Please do look at the schedule at conversations.net and futureofeducation.com. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded and up on the site. Tony Wagner last week on the Global Achievement Gap. Had a lot of fun with Tony, and they've actually followed up with him in a couple of fun ways that we'll see uh, take effect in the future. Carl Blythe on their brilliant Texas, Texas Language Technology Center program. Ken Robinson, obviously, uh, very popular on the element uh, a couple of weeks back. I actually used a... a uh, an exercise from Bill Kiss' book on the social network classroom with a group of educators in New York on Friday that went over extremely well. So uh, I'm going to try and blog about it, but if I don't, remind me and um, I'll tell you what we did to kind of communicate the value of community learning. Um, lots of other fun stuff, including Clay Shirky, who gets some press in this book by Scott. And you can see the list there. If this is your first time in Illuminate, this is a participative environment, so please do feel free to participate. Uh, you have some emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. I'm clapping for Scott right now. You can raise your hand using that hand with the green up arrow. And with an audience of this size, please do feel free to, to raise your hand and ask a question uh, if something comes up as we're talking. And, and we'll definitely have a, a, a period for Q&A specifically at the end as well. Um, you can leave chats in the uh, chat area. If you go up to view, sorry, go up to yes, view layouts and select the wide layout, that chat is a little bit easier to read. So view layouts and then the wide layout, and you'll enjoy following the chat a little bit more. And then you have the whiteboard where you have the orientation slide, and I'm not going to give you permissions to modify the whiteboard. So look for the star, the wand with the star at the end on the left-hand side, click on that, and then click on the map to let us know where you're listening from. And do feel free to shout out in the chat uh, where that is and what time it might be for you. And if there are 
significant weather where you are. I was in Fresno last night, and they had the worst weather in decades there. So, Teresa, I see you over there in Europe giving us a, your, a presence in uh, Frankfurt. Okay, so other than that, the North America-centric audience. Glad to make it global. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so Scott, um, I have to tell you that there's one word that, that really came to mind for me in reading your book, and it was brilliant. The word was brilliant. Uh, I, I just found it. Is, I, is I there a give blush you, icon? There's, there's no blush icon. <laughs> I, I want to congratulate you on on keeping my attention so thoroughly that I couldn't even skip portions of the book, which I normally have to do because of the constraints of time. But reading about the people in this book was fascinating. So would you first tell us a little bit about your own background and kind of what has brought you to writing this book on blogging? Yeah. Um I, I have been a journalist, a writer all my life, and uh, I was a theater critic in the first portion of my career. And um, then I kind of uh, uh, got interested in, in writing about technology, what we were then calling uh, digital culture in the mid-90s, and uh, left uh, my newspaper job in 1995 with a group of people, uh, colleagues at startsalon.com. Uh, and that's you know it was an early web magazine site that uh, um, had a, 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 a its share of success uh, and and failure over the years, and um, spent 11 years there as an editor, uh, and and kind of had a ringside seat there at the whole evolution of of the web, um, that that um, you know uh, covering it, participating in it, uh, and and. Then in, uh, I moved on from Salon. I started writing books and doing other things. And I started having conversations, uh, I'd say, you know, in the mid part of this current decade that uh, with people uh, where they'd say, oh, um, you know, I started a blog. Uh, you know, blogging is so new. You know, it's only, it's like I just discovered it. And I realized, oh, it's, all, it's, it's only been around a year. It's only been around two years. And there's this, this notion that um, people have that, Blogging really started whenever they started their blog, uh, and that's kind of fun and 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 charming in its way. But I also saw that that people were losing the history; they were losing all the stories that uh, you know that I had witnessed uh, and and in a small way participated in. And I also saw at the same time that people were beginning to really throw themselves into the whole social networking phenomenon. And uh, e even those who weren't maybe uh, ambitious enough as writers to tackle something as, as seemingly uh, ambitious as a blog, uh, many more were, were then going on to Facebook or, or uh, Twitter or MySpace or whatever and uh, participating that way. And they were encountering all of these um, disparate kinds of challenges and questions about how much of their personal lives to reveal and how to draw lines and boundaries between their personal lives and their work um, and how to deal with the dynamics of a group and how to kind of respond when people get 
uh, rude to you online, and all of these things that they were encountering as if for the first time, as if no one had ever experienced these things before. And I knew that there were these, this, there was this amazing uh, treasury of stories uh, of people who had already encountered these very same dilemmas and challenges and problems. And so I thought, you know, there is some value to, to preserving this stuff. And in the same way that, you know, um, today, uh, one of my favorite books uh, of technology reporting is Stephen Levy's Hackers. And if you know the book, as I'm sure you do, um, you know, he, he captured this moment in the uh, uh, 70s and early 80s, a formative moment of the computer industry, by telling the stories of the people who were involved then. And it's still a great book today, even though the technology that's described is, is you know, pretty much um, dead and buried. Uh, and so my original uh, title for the book was actually Bloggers as a sort of homage to, to Stephen Levy. And that got changed for all sorts of reasons. But, but that was definitely the, the spirit in which I approached it. So that's really interesting to know. I have not read Hackers, and, and I've just made a note to myself to, to, to get it and actually look it over. But that does help to explain sort of the structure of the book. And you're saying that uh, it was that you wanted to kind of communicate the history of blogging to those who each successive wave that come and sort of see this as a new thing because they're just discovering it. And at the same time, I think that you also convey almost a little bit of the tenuousness of the history. Um, and by, because by telling the stories, it became pretty clear to me that things didn't have to actually have to turn out the way they did. Did you feel that as you were writing the book? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, let me ponder that for a second. I think that there is a, um, uh, a sense I have that, that was really uh, going back to you know, the early days of the web before we had the word blog um, of inevitability around the, the success of the web as an open participatory kind of medium. Um, that's why I quit my job. I, I had a union job. People looked at me like I was crazy. Well, I was leaving a job at a newspaper to do this, this web thing in 1995. I was nuts. Um, but it seemed so exciting to me and so clear that this model of a, uh, uh, an online world would, would win out at the time it was in, you know, there was a whole uh, kind of struggle between uh, the web and, and America Online and CompuServe and these closed uh, systems and, and it wasn't at all uh, a foregone conclusion. But it seemed really clear to me that the open approach was the one that, that had to, to kind of win out. Um, it wasn't, I, it, it wasn't always a, a certainty that, uh, we would end up with the particular form of blogging. And what was really interesting to me in the story and what I tried to capture a little of was how uh, it wasn't the, the, uh, the sort of cliche of you know, a, a, an, a, an innovation uh, arriving by lightning bolt. Um, it was very much a kind of a, a, a almost a, a drag out that old term co-evolution, um, uh, you know, a co-evolving a co between the, the tools that writers on the web were using um, and 
the uses to which they were put. And the, the, in many cases, the writers were programmers, um, and because the, the first wave of bloggers were pretty much all people in technology, um, and and so they would see kind of what worked and what they needed, and they would add a little feature here. Uh, you know, they would say, "Oh, these these uh, posts need each one needs its own page. Let's build that." Uh, we need to create a way uh, for people to comment on these things that we're uh, publishing. So let's add that. If all these sort of features that we now take uh, in the aggregate to mean this is a blog um, were kind of painstakingly handcrafted over the years by people who needed them to use themselves. Um, and that that is to me a you know a, a great story and a lesson in kind of how how technology really evolved. Okay, so I think you've actually expressed that much better than I did, because I, there, there is this sense of sort of inevitability of the openness, and and the book reads as an apologia. I mean, it definitely has this sense of ultimately finding real value in what's taken place. But I was kind of intrigued to hear about what happened with Ev Williams and you know, running a you know, single machine out of his apartment, if I'm remembering correctly, and just how tenuous that felt to me in the story. Yeah. Well, it was the business of, you know, the, the, the whole attempt to turn blogging into a business, whether on an individual level or a small enterprise or at a fairly large level of some of the blogging companies, you know, that is, is really a fascinating, but a little bit of a separate story, which I which I include, but which isn't the primary focus of uh, say everything, because I, it seems to me that even if what the 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 great thing about the story of Blogger um, and and Evan Williams there, you know, kind of ha uh, hovering over the server and and keeping it going, is that even if if he had failed in that, if he had not been able to keep it going, keep the company going. Um, the you know um, that he uh, you know he cared enough about this community he had created uh, or he had you know sort of set in motion um, that he, that wasn't going to disappear. Now it might be that that the server might need to move and it might be that somebody else might need to take it over. But um, the the once you have something that many thousands of people use every day and care about in that way. Um, it's it's not going to vanish off the face of the earth, and indeed, by the time um, uh, 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 that that year, which was 2001, I believe, if I remember, it was 2001 or 2002, it's a little blurry in the head. But one of those years was was kind of the the the, the you know one man show period for Blogger. Um, by that time, there were all, all these other blogging tools, many of them open source, that had emerged. So even if um, you know uh, Blogger itself had vanished, it, the, the the form and the the uh, sort of uh, movement of of blog blogs would would have you know survived and prospered. It might have taken uh, a little longer, or you know, but but the the uh, the passion that people Fueled their their work in this in in blogging, whether it was passion for uh, writing in public or passion for building the tools or passion for joining other people in in a community. Um, that's what's always driven uh, everything about blogging. And so the 
business side of it always, is always this sort of secondary level. Sometimes it's huge too, and sometimes it's 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 been a success in its own way. And and there are certainly lots of kind of blog-based businesses today, both on the publishing side and on the software side. But they've always been secondary. So I participated in a shift in the education world from blogging to social networking. And as the, as the sort of creator and facilitator of a social network for educators, I definitely experienced um, and had to kind of mitigate the transition from blogging, which, which had a kind of highly critical or prickly, as you call it, tone to what was much more of an egalitarian, gentle environment. And part of what I loved about the stories you told were that you presented individuals and their foibles. And I could kind of see larger patterns. So I, what I'm hearing you say is that was sort of intentional to understand that those patterns existed even from the beginning? Definitely. Um, the, 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 uh, there's the, unquestionably, the, the early adopters of blogging, the people who, who um, were, were attracted to it at the very beginning were, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, people who were frustrated with the media world that, that they inherited. Uh, and so they had uh, something to say, and suddenly they were given this tool that let them say it. And um, so there was a combination of um, a sense of giddiness and freedom, and also a sense of um, sort of a release of frustration and anger, uh, and a whole lot, yes, you know, uh, sort of criti uh, uh, the, uh, one of the greatest outpourings of criticism in human history, criticism in all directions, criticism uh, of people just saying what they think about the movie they saw last night, to um, enormous volumes of fairly sophisticated uh, academic criticism that suddenly uh, you know, you were uh, you didn't have to wait to have your paper published. You could say something today. Uh, and if you look at the sort of explosion of legal blogging, as one example, uh, I think is extraordinary in that in that regard. Uh, the dialogue that that people uh, have, uh, you know, about Supreme Court decisions immediately after their issuance. You know, that's something that that wasn't possible before. Um, so so there is this sort of blogging personality that I think is is not uh, universal, but is common in that sense. Um, and what's interesting to me about the, the sort of transition you just described, which I think is a real one, um, is that the we, when, when blogging started, we sort of, uh, people used it as an all-purpose tool, right? Because we didn't have as many tools to choose from in, for online uh, uh, communication. So the people who wanted to do what we kind of do on Twitter today were doing it on their blogs. There are early blogs. A lot of them, um, if, 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 for instance, you look at Evan Williams's old blog from the early days of Blogger that are really short one-sentence, two-sentence posts. And they're about what's going on now or uh, quick links or, you know, brief observations, um, and they're happening within a small community of bloggers who are all linking to each other. It's not as efficient uh, as Twitter, and it, you know, we didn't have the mobile devices and, and, and so forth, but uh, it was very similar. Now, today, with the rise of social networking, um, 
you know, Twitter is a better tool to do that kind of thing, and and um, Facebook is a more effective way of communicating with a small group, of, smaller group of friends. Uh, and there are a more a more well-defined tool set of tools. So blogging, interestingly, I think um, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, well, now that everyone is doing social networking, blogging is dead. And I, I kind of just smile and laugh every time I hear that. Because to me, what, what I think has happened uh, to blogging is that it's become a more clearly and visibly a, an, a, a writing a tool. Right? We know that, oh, the blog is where you put the 500 words that you can't put on Twitter. And then you can go on Twitter and link to it and tell people about it. Um, and you see actually more substantial blogging today, a uh, higher percentage, I think, of what people are posting is uh, uh, something that has been thought through and put a more care into. Uh, and the whole thing is ironic, because in the earliest days of blogging, of course, the initial coverage that it received in the media, um, what, what you heard was blogging is really trivial. Um, it's just a bunch of, you know, mindless chatter, and uh, who needs it? And so here it is roughly 10 years later, and the exact same complaint is uh, thrown at social networking. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's what you said about blogs 10 years ago, and it was wrong then. And I think it's probably wrong today. Yeah, I really love the, uh, your sort of drill down in that area. And, and, and you may have said this, and it also occurred to me as I was reading, that when you go into a social network, you kind of have a built-in audience, but you don't necessarily with blogs. And so one way to get attention was to say something overly dramatic. Sure. I think that, that that's sort of built in to the, the form to some extent, and it's a part of it from the beginning. It, 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 it didn't really kick into overdrive, though, until you saw the rise of professional blogging or you know, uh, blogging sites that were essentially uh, small media companies. So if it's just you and your ego, uh, maybe you know you're the kind of person who is a little bit of an exhibitionist and is going to do that to get the attention, and that's understandable. Um, or maybe you're not, and that's cool too. But if you are blogging in order to boost your page views so that you can sell more advertisements, then uh, the pressure becomes considerably uh, greater, <laughs> and uh, you and of course then, then you have competition as well, and you have competing blogging media outlets. And so you have uh, the, the first one that I'm aware of the, that I talk about in, in Say Everything was the sort of tech blog uh, a war between Gizmodo and Engadget. And these were the, the sort of the first two gadget blogs back in uh, 2004 or 2005. And they went at it, you know, and they kept egging each other on to faster posting and, and more uh, uh, you know, wilder headlines and so forth, and, and really, it was like a newspaper war from you know 75 years ago, 100 years ago, except uh, you know at a much faster pace here on the web, and and uh, that uh, 
same principle is at work uh, with something like uh, Gawker and, and other gossip blogs where, again, the pressure is not just to say it, but to say it uh, more loudly, more snarkily, and um, get that much more attention. Uh, and, and that can be effective up to a point, and then I think you may reach a point of diminishing returns. I thought that example of the newspaper wars was really helpful because it, it was sort of a reminder that things haven't always been the same and that there are periods of time when you know people were vying in that way for readership. I was reminded of the uh, London postcard craze uh, and somebody maybe could find us a link for that but uh, I don't know enough of the details to say but at some point in time in London people were sending postcards almost in the same way that people are using Twitter now. And, and the so this great parallel between sort of the, the quick rise of this ability to communicate and the, you know, the five or ten deliveries a day of postcards in, in uh, the city of London. Yeah, it's, um, a, it, it's a pattern. Who did you end up eating? Go ahead. I, I talked over you. Sorry, Scott. No, I was just saying it's a pattern that's repeated over and over again from, you know, the coffee houses of the 18th century to, uh, you know, the underground magazines of the 60s to name it, does it, it the, the flourishing of uh, you know any kind of written culture when people when it becomes easy to write in public um, is is just this is just the latest and largest manifestation you know Jackie makes a, a point here she's quoting from Gary Vanderchuk um, the wine guy who's who talks a lot about social media that our BS detector has gotten better. And when I speak, I like to show the picture of the Cottingley fairies uh, from I think 1916 or 1917. And these were pictures that two young girls who were cousins had taken that they purported showed actual fairies. And, and largely, the, the public bought into this idea. And we look at them with our current sensibilities in our current visual media capabilities, and we instantly can tell that they're fakes. And part of what your book did for me was to kind of go back and, and sort of go through the history and kind of pull out what mattered and what didn't, and, and in, in a way that I think we're going to increasingly be able to look and see what makes a difference in, in what we're calling social media and what doesn't. Well, I think the, 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 the BS detec detection capability is there. Um, you know, there's sort of a, a glass half full and half empty way of viewing this, and the half full way suggests, yes, that we can all really, uh, we have so many more tools at hand and we can, you know, uh, do searches and we can t uh, confer with our social network and we can get answers and put things together very quickly. Um, there's a glass half empty view, which is, you know, uh, to me is sort of an open question, which is, Wow, you know, we do have all these tools, and yet we still have um, some pretty astonishing um, uh, pub problems uh, of public discourse of things that you know large numbers of people believe that to me seem plainly not true. <laughs> um, whether, and, and you know, without getting into the politics of it, because uh, uh, I think there are examples from both left and right. Uh, there's there's definitely you know uh, uh, we still have. We still have a long way to go on the, the BS detection side, but but I, I'm I'm I tend to the hopeful view too because I see uh, uh, a lot of the the problems that 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 we have in this area today are transitional problems. The fact that you know so many so many of the stories about uh, misinformation today are really uh, the result of 
the failure at the interface between new media and old media, where somebody working in a newsroom for a TV station or a newspaper picks something up from the web because their BS detector is not working properly and, and spreads it very widely, and then you know the, the game is over already. So the, the subtitle of the book is uh, How Blogging Began, What It's Becoming, and Why It Matters. So um, let's we'll kind of go to the why it matters. What are some of the, the sort of ready criticisms that you hope the book addresses? Well, uh, we already touched, I guess, on the, the trivial one. To me, you know, I, I've, I see such an, an active um, and vibrant uh, 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 space for public deliberation, well, deli public discussion of uh, things that are really important, whether it's, you know, whatever the issue of the day is, um, uh, blogs are where people are um, expressing themselves at length and with passion. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, most recently, so I followed the whole healthcare debate with, with great uh, interest. And, um, I, you know, I got a certain amount of, of value from the, you know, high quality uh, professional press. But I got so much more from uh, just people who were um, discussing it from their own perspective, whether they were uh, participants in the healthcare industry, uh, people who knew about the financing side of it. Um, uh, so, and, and that sort of you know leads me to the point that what what's happened is that participants in every corner of our culture now have the chance, if they choose to, and not everyone will choose to, but many will, um, to go public with their expertise, their perspective, and their insight. Um, and we've never really had that before. Uh, and the journalists often dismiss this when, when uh, I make this argument and will say, well, you know, the public really wants to, to have intermediaries. Um, they don't want to hear directly from the sources. Our job is to boil it all down. And then you talk to people, uh, if it's something that they're actually interested in, uh, people who are, you know, for want of a better word, we can call the, the public, uh, and they say, well, no, actually, it's much more interesting um, for me to hear it directly from the horse's mouth, you know that that that's, that tells me more, um, and I think that um, what hap writing in public is something we sh the the value of writing in public is something we should never underestimate. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I started my career as a theater critic and. Um, people would ask me right after a show, they'd say, you know, well, what did you think? Um, and I would always have to say, well, I, I don't really know yet. Tell me, I, I'll tell you after I've written my piece. Uh, because the act of writing was how I figured out what I thought. And I think that that experience is now open to a much, much wider portion of, of the citizenry than it used to be. Um, and that is uh, an amazing thing. So uh, I guess I, I, I jumped from uh, from r responding to a criticism to to making another part of my case. But I, it's well, a, it's an important thing. 
I, I think most of us here are apologists in this area. So you are preaching to the choir a little. But it is, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting to kind of think about that. And I thought about it in my own life. And I, I did not write for the student newspaper. I was largely a silent student. I was you know, afraid to raise my hand. And it is kind of intriguing that the, 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 this new media, the, the new opportunities to participate, um, have re-engaged me. And I think that's a pretty common story that you hear both inside of education and out. That in participating, all of a sudden it released something within us where we felt like we could do things that mattered, and we could actually that 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 long tail was 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 longer than we thought it was, or more available. And all of a sudden, the kind of maybe volunteering that we did at the Red Cross or at our church or our synagogue could turn into doing things of substance that had broader effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's. That's absolutely right. Now, as you were talking, I, I did remember. So the the two other, two big key arguments about uh, blogging, which I'll, I'll try to quickly kind of um, give my response to. One is is the overload question, right? The the uh, the notion that there's just too many blogs, and and people should shut up already because because nobody can keep up with all of them. And to me, it's an absurd argument. Um, we, we have you know, thousands of books published each year. Nobody reads more than a fraction of them, but we view it as a sign of the vitality of our culture. Um, you know, thousands of movies uh, get released each year. Uh, uh, nobody watches them all. Even the people who are paid to watch them can only see a fraction of them. Um, that's not a problem. Uh, why is it that uh, with blogs, anyone feels an obligation to read any more than uh, they can and feel is valuable to them. Um, if, if there is a problem, it's a problem that uh, maybe we encounter too much stuff that we think is really potentially valuable to us, and we can't keep up with that. And that is a problem, but it's a good problem to have, I think. Um, so I don't, I don't worry about the overload uh, uh, issue in terms of blogging. The other one is the echo chamber argument, the idea that um, blogging means that, uh, uh, you know, we, and social networking, I think it, this becomes an issue with as well, uh, uh, we only talk to people who we already agree with. Uh, and while I think that there is an element of truth to that, uh, because it's a natural human instinct to flock with the people who one feels uh, simpatico with, uh, it's also true that uh, we actually have a much easier time of it today to connect with people who disagree with us um, in all sorts of ways. I, I, when I was growing up, uh, if I wanted, I was a liberal. If I wanted to understand the conservative point of view, I pretty much had to go out and buy a copy of William F. Buckley's magazine, which I didn't want to do because I didn't feel like spending my money that way. Um, and today, uh, if I want to understand how people who disagree with me think, um, I have a million opportunities, and I can get a whole spectrum of people, and I can, as indeed I have, select a few people who I know disagree with me regularly, but who challenge me, and who I think are actually applying thoughtful, um, consistent arguments that make me think deeply about what I believe in, and I include them in my mix of uh, uh, you know, uh, media, and, and I can only do that because this form exists. Um, I, doing that any other way would be, would be a lot harder. So I, I think that the, the echo, chamber, echo chambers may exist, but they are more voluntary than ever. And if you are uh, out there trying to challenge yourself, you have a, a much easier 
opportunity to do that today. I, um, one of the, I spoke this morning in, in beautiful Fresno, California, and one of the educators came up to me afterwards and said, um, you know, is there really room for everybody to be pursuing their passion? Uh, you know, kind of like this question of overload. Isn't there already great material about all of these things? And, and my response was that we assume it's about reading or consuming material, when often it's about writing or creating. And exactly. that the act of that has value and importance. I, I agree, and I think that uh, again, it's 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 all about what uh, what's your goal. I mean, if you're if you want to be a media personality, or you want to earn your living producing um, uh, writing or any kind of media content, then you bet it's a tough world out there right now because there is more competition than ever and there is there is an overabundance of, of stuff um, uh, if you're looking to, to earn money that way. But if you are uh, looking to write in public, for example, which is uh, with blogging or do any of the other things that we can now do, um, and, and you're doing it because it helps you figure out uh, what you think about things, or because it helps you connect with other people, or because it helps you solve a problem in your life, or it helps make you a better writer, or any of these numerous other possible goals you might have, um, there isn't a reason in the world to, to say, oh, uh, you know, X n number of other people are already doing this, so why should I? It's like saying um, every uh, the world you know I'm not going to learn to play guitar because uh, boy look at Eric Clapton he's you know Jimi Hendrix they they did it already and I'll never be as good as them so why bother? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, one of the things that comes out in the book, I think you know because of the foibles that you show or the sort of the the real story is that it really. It almost has the feeling of a gold rush, like even these people with varying degrees and different personalities were able to get in and do something of value. And one of the stories I hear a lot is that you know that that the traditional media will ultimately co-opt what's taking place in the blogging world. And I think you addressed that in the book as well, right? Um, yeah, that I mean the most interesting person making that argument today, I think, is uh, Nick, Nicholas Carr. Um, who has his, and who, as I point out, is a very interesting writer, smart guy, um, and makes this great case against blogging where on his blog, which is called Rough Type. Um, and he wrote a, a book uh, last year or the year before about cloud computing. He's got another book coming out soon, which is all about um, what the Internet is doing to our brains. And I look forward to reading it. I, I think I'll probably end up disagreeing with, with at least some of it. But his argument in, in this regard is that um, uh, he looks at the early history of radio, for example, and points out that in the earliest days uh, of radio, you know, it was all amateurs kind of um, uh, trading their call letters and you know doing the, the ham radio thing, um, and that as soon as people figured out how to make money with it. Uh, the radio networks came along, and everyday people, except for a very small number of hobbyists, stopped broadcasting. 
Um, and this is true, and it's, that is how radio evolved, but I don't take it as uh, an inevitability that the same thing will happen on the Internet, because I think the Internet is actually a fundamentally different kind of medium. And this is, this is the big debate, I think, about the future of the Internet today. It's, is the, are we just living through a transition uh, at the end of which uh, things will return to the status quo ante and we'll have a few big media companies uh, uh, making all the media in our lives and we will all go back to our whatever we were doing before. Uh, I can't imagine that. I think that that is, is, is very unlikely. Um, but there are people who believe it and it's an, you know, it's an interesting thing to keep, uh, keep arguing about. <laughs> so if you're okay with it, I'd like to kind of shift a little bit into education because the, the listenership here is um, sort of education oriented. Given that, that the book reads as an apology and especially the epilogue, you know, sort of a very compelling case for seeing the value of what's taking place here. But knowing that this particular book is not likely to make it to the most high school reading list be just because it's sprinkled with some of the language that was very much a part of the early, early blogging, what should we be teaching about blogging in schools? How important is this? And, and are we missing something if we're not recognizing its value from the school perspective? Well, you know, I don't have, uh, I have, I'm a father of uh, kids who are now in fifth grade, twin boys, and so I haven't kind of gotten up to the, the high school world yet uh, and to have my own experience with it uh, and from that perspective. But I think um, that the, any, any opportunity that young people have to write regularly in a way that... Scott, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but your audio is fading out. We can barely hear you. Did you move or anything? I don't think so. Is that better now? No, it's still pretty bad. I wonder if your connection slowed down or something happened. Can you talk again? I'm no, almost unintelligible. Let's have, you, let's have you turn your audio off and then turn it back on again. So click that button off. Got it, got it. Okay, now click back on. No, it's actually, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to continue if it stays the same way. You know what? I have one, one thing that occurred to me, which is that other people may be using my, my DSL files here at home. It's, I, can, I can take 30 seconds and let's have you do that. So Terry, you think the book should be required reading, even sprinkled with the F word? Yeah, I mean the F word's on the internet. You know, it's something. It's a conversation. It's out there, but everything else is so much uh, background information and behind-the-scenes stories that even myself, I was living in San Francisco in 1998, 1999 when this was happening. I had no idea. I was 18 at the time. It's yeah. fascinating now that I'm really involved to see this perspective. Yeah, I'm not sure I would say this necessarily needs to be on uh, every high school reading list. But I am now but back. Oh, you sound great. This Whatever it was, you've solved it. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, you can hear me now. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so if you can remember where you were, please go on. We were, we were talking about school and um, the teaching of this and your own children. 
Right. Um, so I, I mean, I just think writing um, writing regularly in a form that other people can read, and the idea that you know, I did so much writing as a student that only went to one person, the teacher. That was it. And when I think back at my, you know, and then, then I became a, a journalist and got used to writing for an audience. And, and when I think back and realize how much writing I did for an audience of one, uh, and how would my experience have been different if, if a lot of that writing was actually um, uh, available to my fellow students? Uh, now, in some ways, that's much scarier, right? It's 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 you're you're exposed, but it also gives you a chance to learn from the other students in a way that uh, I never had. Uh, and I, when I did finally get the chance to learn from other students, which was on my high school paper, uh, I met uh, uh, you know I worked with a, a student who was a year older than me who taught me how to write. Um, I mean, the the reason I'm a writer today is that I had a student editor who. Um, really you know was my best writing teacher uh, and to think that that kind of opportunity can be more widespread because people students can write uh, you know for one another as well as for their teachers that just seems so um, magical to me uh, you know and there are, and, and I'm sure it brings many many problems as well but <laughs> No, I would agree, and, and I have four children, and my children are, I would say they're writing, you know, ten times as much as I ever did, if not more, and their writing is being read by way more people than mine ever was. I, I actually often say the same thing, that my mom and my teacher were the only ones who, who saw my papers. Um, what about the you know the five paragraph essay is sort of the the basis for learning to write? Do we need to rethink that a little because we you know we don't see the five paragraph essay really anywhere on the web? Yeah, I, I mean I I think you know writing learning to write an essay is I, I maybe I'm old fashioned I still think it's valuable. Um, I don't think it's we should be just tossed out the door. Um, I think it's the kind of a, a, like any form. It's a it's it's a it's a useful form to know. You know, it's sort of like uh, uh, if you're learning poetry, uh, you learn how to write a sonnet, even if you're never going to write sonnets as of you know as your own form. That's not what you know probably what you're going to be doing. Maybe, maybe a small number of people will, will, will continue to, to thrive in that, uh, in that form, but, but most won't. And, and similarly, I think that there are some basics. Uh, you've got, you, people have to learn some, uh, students have to find some way in to writing. Um, now, it might be that essays, which have been the, the core of that for so long, no longer need to be or should be that. Maybe it's something else. Uh, I, don't, you know, I don't have enough experience teaching to, to say what. Um, I think the most important thing in learning writing is to do it. Uh, and the more you do uh, with, with feedback, the better you get. So here we have this tool that lets people write a lot and get feedback. And that just seems uh, in itself, um, you know, exciting. 
Okay, so I want to switch to Q&A. If you've got a question, please feel free to uh, test your audio by going up to Tools Audio and running the Audio Setup Wizard so we can give you the microphone. Or you're welcome to put your question in the chat. Scott, kind of as, as a finish to you and I talking, I, I get the feeling in the end that, that for you, writing gives life meaning. And that when all is said and done, that you see this as enormously positive. The, the, it, uh, when you're talking about blogging, do you feel like this is something uh, that really is extraordinarily positive? Is that ultimately sort of the, the goal of the book is to show the positive value? I think the, the goal of the book for me was to, to mostly to, to record this uh, experience with the, the you know, rare opportunity we had to actually see a new form of writing uh, uh, emerge and, and how that happened. Uh, and then secondarily, um, yes, I think to make this, this case um, for uh, what I think will be the record of our time. You know, when, when 100 years from now, uh, the historians are trying to figure out uh, how, how people lived uh, in our day, they're going, their problem isn't going to be um, how, to, how to find the primary material. It's going to be how to interpret this amazing record we have. You know, if, if you go back to the Middle Ages, um, you know, we have one, uh, one diary of, a, of somebody in a town who actually kept records of how much they spent on this and that, and, and uh, that becomes our window onto the age. And we don't even know. We, we hope that it was an accurate one or a representative, and who knows. Um, in the, the, the blog, the, the, the movement of blogging means that a much vaster amount of human experience is actually being recorded. Um, and that is, to me, a, a, a great thing, too. So, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to be on, on record as saying, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a, a, a case to be made for blogging, yes. <laughs> okay, I, didn't. I, will, I don't think I would have, I don't think that, that was how I, you know, what I set out to do, but, but maybe that is where I went. Well, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. But I, I sort of felt that going along in the book, that every, every time sort of a question would come up that you kind of mitigated and helped to put it in context. And then by the end of the book, I felt like you were, you were helping us to see the long-term true value, uh, you know, for, again, making my own colors known here, of, of this new form of, of writing. Okay, so if you have a question for Scott, uh, this is a good time to ask it. Deb, you're saying, do you think everyone can be a writer? So I, I, I'm hoping that you mean that question for Scott. And if you would like to elaborate, please feel free or raise your hand, and we'll give you the mic. But uh, going with that, Scott, how would you answer? Um, you know, it's it, it depends. Obviously, uh, I guess it, it it depends on exactly what you mean by writer. Um, I think everyone is a writer. Um, uh, everyone who, who at least you know has the good fortune to uh, be literate. Um, uh, the you, be a professional writer, whole nother matter. You know, the moment it becomes something becomes your livelihood, different story. Um, all sorts of other issues enter. But um, I think we are all writers uh, in one way or another. Some of that writing may only be of interest to a very small number of people. Uh, maybe just immediate family, or maybe family and friends. Um, but uh, you're, you're, you're a writer the way you are a, uh, a, a thinker or a, uh, 
you know, uh, a maker, you know, an artist. I mean, they, there is a, a long tradition of the notion that everyone is, in some sense, an artist, and I think I subscribe to that. So yes, I think my answer is yes. So I'm going to follow up on that before we go to Deb's second question, and, and Terry, you may have some oh. questions as well. Yes, I have a few. Um, but, but quickly, Scott. So you know, this question of uh, everybody being an artist. We, we talked to. Um, um, Sir Ken Robinson uh, uh, about this, and then uh, I'm hoping to get Seth Godin on the show as well. And, and one of the pieces of pushback that I get from people is, um, is there really room for everyone to pursue their passion? How much of that is a, a cultural mindset, and how much of that is truth? Are we in a period of time where anybody can kind of go out now and do something, and, and will that window close as more and more people are doing different things in the long tail? Well, when you say, is there room, I think if, if I understand the way the question, what you're really asking is, um, is there an economic kind of basis? I mean, if, if if we had uh, you know, a, a hypothetical society in which we did not have to spend eight hours a day um, earning a living, uh, which is what most people do in the United States if, if they have a job, um, then you know, they would be free to pursue their passion, and why not? Um, so, so you know, in other words, there's there's the freedom to pursue your passion, and then there's the the question of uh, our recognition and status. And there is never enough room for everyone to have recognition and status because status is inherently limited because that's its nature. Um, so it, it, you know, that it, but but. Uh, that doesn't stop you from pursuing the passion, it seems to me. Does that, am I answering your question? Oh, yeah. And I, I asked the question with an answer in mind. I mean, I, again, I'm in, I'm in agreement. And, and just because you're working eight hour a day doesn't mean you can't really enjoy that time in the evening, which would have previously been television time, doing something you passionately care about. But it is a common pushback that I get from people who will say, you know, isn't there a limit to how much long-tail work can be done? And, and are we in a period of time now where you can start something that no one else has done, but in 10 years that won't be the case? In fact, I heard this from Tim Magner, who's a guest coming on um, soon, and I'm, and I'm trying to compose a response, which, is, uh, which I think you've articulated well. You know, if the goal is to do something that you care about and, it, and you're not worried about making money, of course there's room. And I see the comment, which I totally agree with, which is that if you're lucky, uh, your your passion and your work, you know, coincide, and people who uh, who love their work are, you know, doubly blessed. Um, but even if even if you don't have a job that you know you're passionate about, uh, that shouldn't make it. Uh, you know, you shouldn't then look around and say, oh. Uh, I'm not going to pursue my passion because I'm I'm way back in the long tail or whatever. So Teresa, co-host Teresa, would you like to ask some questions? Yeah, and actually, just a comment on your the last comment. I mean, I really felt like reading this book. Um, I did see that there was like a tragedy to everyone, but kind of a happy ending with everyone pursuing their passions. And it didn't just happen overnight. I, I really enjoyed reading Ed Williams because obviously it's very prevalent right now with Twitter, even though that's been around for a couple of years. Um, but hearing the story and how it came about and his whole background and all the struggles and where he failed and where he succeeded and 
how he shared that along the way. I found a lot of that in your book. And it was, you know, so it's kind of like a testament to pursuing your passions in a way. Um, so anyways, uh, one of the questions I had for you uh, kind of touched on it a little bit with um, like life, life logging and life casting. I know it's near the end uh -huh. of your book. Yeah, but yeah. But I was well, curious if you if you're doing it. We had uh, Gordon Bell on and Jim Gimmel a couple weeks ago. Great. And I was curious if you were actually doing that yourself. I'm not. Uh, I am. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, just curious. Uh, cause it's deep. <laughs> it's it's you know I for me it's a combination of things. I think part of it's just you know so life logging this this idea of really. Uh, um, uh, exhaustively and, and perhaps obsessively chronicling your own life, whether it's uh, uh, in terms of writing or video or audio or all of the above or pick, you know, still pictures or uh, trying to capture as much as possible. Um, I, I, um, I already have, you know, I've, I've been keeping my own writing since I was uh, a kid. Um, I have a lot large periods of my life that I had no photographic record of because I just wasn't taking pictures. Then I became a parent, so of course that changed. Um, uh, you know, it, it just—it's not where I've—I've I've put my energy into uh, telling other people's stories, I guess, because that uh, has always been more of a passion for me than than kind of um, autobiography and and telling my own story. Uh, and and so, but I think that's just that's sort of there. Are, we all, there's a whole range of temperaments, uh, and I don't think one is better or worse than the other. I think there are people who have the the mindset and the energy and and the inclination to sort of catalog their own existence in ways that can be fascinating and can be of value to other people. You know, it's, there's always this charge of narcissism, and in some cases, I'm sure it is motivated by narcissism, but it's not necessarily the case. It's not that 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 the, the this kind of activity is inherently narcissistic. I think it can be, but it can also be. Um, uh, creating interesting stories for other people, interesting data for the future, which I'm sure Gordon Bell talked about. Um, and uh, it, it all depends on where you're coming from and what your, what your uh, attitude is about this, this self-examination you're, you're undertaking. Uh, it is, you know, there is the old saying about the examined life, and, and we can kind of um, to talk about that, I think the question there is, are you collecting this data and then putting it aside, or are you collecting it and then reviewing it and examining it and, and, and probing it for meaning? That would be um, my question. Jerry, probably time for one more. I may have lost Teresa or she turned her mic off. Is it back on? Can you hear me now? We can hear you. Oh, great. Uh, the last question I had was, uh, what are you reading or tracking online or um, through blogs or just what's on your bookshelf right now? Um, I'm reading this book called, um, uh, it's by this guy Bill Wasik, W-A-S-I-K, uh, uh, and I think the title of it is, uh, And Then This Happened. Or, uh, I may be I may be slightly garbling the title, and he has a bunch of theories about uh, the nature of experience on the web. He he is a a New York uh, journalist uh, who organized the first flash mobs, and he has an interesting take on 
uh, online culture where he's thinking about things in terms of people turning their lives into performances and sort of how we, we've all you know, become media celebrities for one another and we perform for each other. And it's a little bit of sort of, it brings me a little bit back to my theater criticism days, um, and it's also a little bit, I think, heavily rooted in a New York media world where people really are, uh, uh, a greater percentage of people doing online stuff are uh, harbor, you know, ambitions for careers in media. Um, but it's interesting, and he's a smart writer, and, and I'm actually really enjoying it. So I'm only about halfway through it, so I don't know where he ultimately takes it, but that's what I'm reading now. Okay, you've given us one more book for the list, right, Teresa? Yeah, it's on. I, I recognize the name. I know who it is. Okay, Scott, I'm clapping for you. Thanks so much for coming on tonight. It was Thank great. You. My pleasure. Say everything. Uh, really a privilege to, to have read the book. Really enjoyed it. I think you did a, a terrific job uh, with it, and it will stand the test of time. I'm sure glad that, it, uh, that you have written it. Thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate, to uh, C. Bloom and Associates for their sponsorship of the book budget, and do uh, Take a look at the list of upcoming interviews. Hopefully, you'll join us for something. Jackie, we know we'll see you on the 27th. Hopefully, others of you will uh, come and listen to Jackie talk about user-generated uh, education. Scott, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And thanks, everybody else, for joining. OK, so we're going to finish there. Scott, you can just um, close your window down. Uh, All right. Thanks for coming on. The connection was great. Whatever you did in the middle there to, to make things better, it worked. I didn't want to admit it, but what uh, what was happening was, I, I think, was that my kids were upstairs firing up the World of Warcraft on their, <laughs> on their computers. And of course, that is a awesome. major bandwidth uh, hog. And, and so uh, I called upstairs and told them to wait until after 6 o'clock. And I believe that did the trick. Okay, so you can tell them they can, they can get back on. There we go. Thanks, everybody, Thanks for coming. Thanks, Scott. Okay. Have a good night. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.